Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Department stores across London and beyond facing an existential crisis. A new design contest for East Bank, London's newest cultural quarter, on land once earmarked for housing. Open House Worldwide Festival delves into every aspect of homes with 12 hours of live video tours from around the globe and the US Architecture School reigniting tension over a toxic culture in architectural education. My name is Siraj Mitha and I'm an architect and the head of the Accelerate program at Open City and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London Architecture News. Welcome to the London. This week we are recording from the Sterling Prize winning Kingston Townhouse, designed by Grafton Architects as part of Kingston University in front of a live studio audience. Thank you all very much for being with us. I myself am a Kingston alumni and studied architecture here many moons ago, albeit in the campus across the road, which didn't look nearly as nice as it does now. Um, my guests this week are the writer and historian Tom Wilkinson and the architect and senior lecturer at Kingston University, Laura Evans. Thank you both for being with us. Thank you. So then, let's begin with our first story. Department stores across Britain are facing an existential crisis in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic. This is a story that speaks to the city centre of London and town centres everywhere in the country, not least Kingston, which, as we all know, is home to both the mighty Bentall Centre and John Lewis Department Store. It was picked up from a press release by the AJ and other built environment publications, but was also extensively covered by titles across the country, including The Guardian, Liverpool Echo and the Shropshire Star. A new report by Save Britain's Heritage found that the pandemic and the rise of online shopping has caused an avalanche of closures, leaving thousands of shops vacant across the country. According to the report, 237 department stores sat empty last summer, and many of these buildings are now at risk of being lost either to demolition or decay. The campaign group highlighted 19 stores it categorised as at risk, including the 1930s Marks and Spencer's building on Oxford Street, controversially approved for demolition last November, and something the regular listeners will know we've covered extensively on the London. 
This contentious project itself has witnessed a potential change of fortunes in the past week following an AJ story published last Friday morning. The article revealed that a highly critical report by architect and GLA climate advisor, Simon Sturgis, which warned that Pilbro's 10-story scheme was directly at odds with planning policy, was not considered by the mayor's team, despite it being submitted to the GLA several times in the weeks before the decision was made. Just hours after publishing, the article and spokesperson for Mayor Sadiq Khan said the planning decision will be revisited. This time, Sturgis's report will be considered and the GLA's own guidance on whole life carbon and the circular economy, which was updated just last month, will be taken into account. Meaning the building itself could now be saved. Alongside MS's flagship London store, Save Britain's Heritage also highlighted a number of other buildings at serious risk, including a former Debenhams store in Canterbury with a ceramic tiled frontage and stained glass Art Nouveau windows, and another in Bristol, which is currently being sold. Save executive president Marcus Binney said, and I quote, London has Fortnum's, Harrods, and Selfridges. But all over Britain, cities, towns, spas, and seaside resorts boast handsome department stores built on proud corner sites or set prominently on high streets. Many were designed by local architects of note and founded by leading local families and are all destinations in themselves. Yet a decade of online shopping and COVID have brought an avalanche of closures. A race is now on to put life back into them. It's a tough challenge, but as Hattie Lloyd's report shows, there is hope too. So then, Tom, what's the significance of the department store in Britain? When and how did they come about? And how have they changed throughout their history? So the department store is really, I would say, a key type of architectural modernity. It's one of the key building types that develops as urbanisation starts happening, as people come together in big masses in the cities. And it's not just British, this happens in France and Paris, of course, um, and in the USA, in Chicago, New York, Philadelphia, all around about the same time. Some of the earliest examples actually, in fact, probably the earliest example precedes the French Revolution. So they've got a really long history. And then they developed via um, chains that we knew and loved, like Debenhams, which was established in 1778 in London, um, and quickly opened um, other stores in Cheltenham and Harrogate. Um, Debenhams closed last year, so we all know what happens at the end of this story. And I guess the appeal of uh, the department store when it started out was that it offered an alternative to a city that was still in some senses fairly medieval. It was dirty, the streets were narrow, it wasn't really all that safe. And the new urban middle classes, particularly women, wanted a place where they could go in the city, where they would be safer, where uh, the hood polloi wouldn't pester them. Um, and where they could shop in a sort of a, a comfortable atmosphere. So it's the development of um, mass production in the Industrial Revolution, the transformation of the city, new technologies like electric light and later escalators, um, lifts. These all come together to produce these remarkable interiors, which are devoted to the commodity. Um, and personally, I have very mixed feelings about department stores. I guess I'll miss them when they've gone, but I think we've all probably had fairly dismal experiences in them too. Yeah. It's interesting that you, know, you described a few things 
um, about the department store that in its inception were, was quite progressive. And, you know, perhaps since then, society has evolved to maybe leave them behind. So with that in mind, and given the last two years of the pandemic and the exponential rise in internet shopping, do you think there's a place for the department store in Britain's future? And, and if so, how might they sort of need to adapt? Um, in a word, no. Uh, <laughs> I, I think the department store is doomed. Um, some, of them, some of them will survive, like Selfridges will survive. Um, the big Parisian ones will survive. Cardiffe in Berlin will survive. Mm. Um, the big Macy's in big American cities will survive because they're kept alive by tourists. I was going to ask, why do you think those particular stores will survive? People go to them to go to the store. Mm. Um, and like a provincial department store like Boswell's in Oxford, where I grew up, is closed, closed a couple of years ago. It was really old. It was a couple of hundred years old. It's gone. It was crap, I'm afraid. It had become crap. It was depressing being in there. Um, and I don't think there's very much they can do to, to you know, they can't fight the tidal wave of online shopping. It's not possible. Thanks, Tom. Laura, um, what can be said for the architecture of such purpose-built buildings? Is it possible to change their function? What architectural barriers, what are the architectural barriers that need to be tackled in order for a change of use? I think at their best, architects are very nimble. Um, so there's a great deal also of human intelligence when it comes to unpicking and reconfiguring buildings. You know, I think there's a long history of this kind of activity. If you think about the uh, Mosque Cathedral of Cordoba or Diocletian's Palace, you know, buildings that just get sort of knocked about and changed as they needed to. Um, but I mean, there, there are also factors that that make this easier or more difficult. I think some buildings are more flexible than others when it comes to changing their use. You know, what are they made from? What kind of redundancy is there in the existing structure? You know, can you build something on top of it, for example? Um, what are the dimensions of its column grid? What's this kind of floor ceiling height? These are all key factors. And then there's also the question of who is paying for this and what are their ambitions? Because the architect has, of course, agency, but not the ultimate agency you know we're not ultimately the decision makers and there are other forces that um cause buildings to be reused or not thank you with that said you know the marks and spencer's building on Oxford street store demolition uh, that has rocked news in london recently what do you make of this building as it stands and and um and what about pilbara and partners design you know is demolition and rebuild really necessary or are the campaigners calling for it to be saved onto something um i think the existing building is rather average, perhaps, um, but the Pilbara and Partners scheme is aggressively so. I think it kind of, in its facade expression, it picks up certain maybe more sincere recent investigations and just sort of deploys them as a motif. It's like it's got wallpaper on the outside. Um, so, so there's that. I think that's that's a factor. Um, but having said that, you know, it does some quite intelligent things. I think it's naturally ventilated for part of the year and it uses its exposed slabs um, as part of a passive cooling system. So it's not all bad in terms of its operational energy. But the questions that have been raised around whole life carbon are critically important and they're in urgent need of review, I think. And there's also there's a larger conversation beyond commercial property. Um, you know, in the residential sector, VAT is charged on work for refurbishment, but not on new build, which seems somehow like the complete inverse of where we should be at at the moment. 
Thank you. Okay, uh, moving on to the next story. Um, South Kensington's Victoria and Albert Museum, the V&A, has launched a competition for the design of exhibition spaces inside its new East London outpost. The story was covered by the AJ uh, as part of its extensive competitions coverage and featured prominently on its homepage and in its morning newsletter, marking out as a major item of significance to the UK and London built environment. The winners of this restricted two-stage contest will design a pair of 1.4 million to 1.7 million pound gallery spaces to fit out the V&A East Museum in the first of several competitions to be planned for the building over the next two years. The appointment will cover the design and delivery of two Why We Make collection galleries across two floors and it could be extended to include the creation of circulation spaces and an entrance gallery. V&A East Museum will form the centrepiece of Stratford's new 1.1 billion East Bank cultural quarter. The O'Donnell and Toomey designed buildings rising to 42.5 metres tall and has been inspired by an X-ray image of a 1954 Cristobal Balenciaga dress and the Japanese concept of Ma, which I'm sure you all know refers to the space in between. Uh, Due to open in 2025, the large-scale 7,000-square-metre complex will host major exhibitions, festivals, commissions, installations, live performances, pop-ups, and late-night events. When completed, it will be a key building in Allies and Morrison's master plan for the East Bank, formerly known as Olympicopolis, which also includes a theatre for Sadler's Wells, a new campus for UAL's London College of Fashion, as well as Uh, new BBC studios. The East Bank development area has already begun accumulating criticism as many question the need for a brand new arts and culture venture, which is estimated to cost £1.3 billion, just 35 minutes by train away from the current hub in South Kensington. Announced by former Mayor Boris Johnson in 2015, the decision to create East Bank on land formerly earmarked for new homes has meant that 1,000 fewer homes will be constructed on the Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park, with London's demand for housing just as pressing as ever, almost 10 years after the Olympic Games. So then, Laura, this new competition sounds like an amazing opportunity for young emerging designers to make a stamp on the city's cultural landscape, what would you like to see from them? Well, I think the VNA has a very good track record of commissioning emerging and small practices. And so this is a very exciting opportunity, particularly as we know um, the procurement landscape here makes it very difficult uh, for emerging designers to get commissions like this. It's very exciting. Um, I think I would advocate for design for a long lifespan and the considered use of material. I think internal fit-outs are prone to being refreshed with alarming regularity. Um, you know, that there's a sort of sense that an identity is somehow associated with um, an internal fit out and it can just be ripped out in five years time. Um, and that the climate crisis demands that we take a much longer view about the way that we intervene um, in existing buildings and elsewhere. Do you think the, the sort of successful um, competition entry will hopefully rise to the challenge of that? I do hope so. I think um, the brief has only been published today, so I haven't uh, yeah. had a chance to go into no, it, no, but no, I, mean, I think that would be a, a worthy aspiration. So the museum is looking for, and I quote, dynamic, active and captivating proposals for the new exhibits. What does dynamic space look like to you? you know? <laughs> are, are there any examples <laughs> we can learn from? Um, I worry about dynamic space. I think <laughs> yeah. it's, um, it's not generally good when a building moves. <laughs> uh, so 
One it hopes is. that that's not what we have in mind. Um, I'm interested to know really how little you can do there. You know, I think of something like Lacaton and Vassal's Palais de Tokyo, um, which becomes, you know, a space that the users can constantly reshape. It's somewhere to meet, um, which is quite free. It changes depending on what happens there. Like, what would that be like in Stratford, this sort of space for cultural activity that's open, you know, 12, 13 hours a day, noon to midnight, um, that can just be appropriated. I think that would be quite a nice gesture. Tom, can you tell us about the site, um, sort of history of the area? How does it compare, do you think, to the vision of the East Bank Master Plan? I mean, this is a, it's a story with lots of twists and turns. Um, it was a toxic wasteland. Um, in some regards, it is still a toxic wasteland, <laughs> um, largely thanks to Boris Johnson and Robin Wales, the former mayor of um, Newham, um, who was who was mayor from 2002 to 2018. So he's got um, a lot to answer for with regards to what Stratford looks like now. They are delivering a lot of homes. Um, there were air quotes around that for our listeners. Um, and they, I looked at their website and they claimed that they've already produced 10,000 homes out of a target of 33,000 and that 50% of these are affordable. But when you look a bit into the small print, it turns out that that's by habitable room. So it's not actually 50% of the homes. It seems a slightly strange way of um, approaching that question to me. And the East Bank itself um, has changed a bit partly for the most peculiar reasons, but then we are in London, so urbanism here is peculiar. It was because it turned out that some of the towers which were being used to cross-subsidise the arts facilities, the residential towers, had to be made very much smaller because it turned out that you could see them from... Let me get this right. It was from Richmond. And I didn't really think you could see Stratford from Richmond, but apparently it turns out that if you've got a telescope, then your view of St Paul's is going to be ruined by these towers. So then they had to rejig everything, and that's where the latest plan has come from. But I mean, personally speaking, I think it's a good thing to build expensive arts facilities, uh, partly because I live in Newham, so... Uh, but I think, they should, I think it's not a zero-sum game. I think they should be building expensive art facilities all around the country. I don't think not building one in Stratford is going to encourage them to build one in Stoke. Um, I just don't think that's how it works. Yeah. I'm always interested to see what sort of um, Section 106 promise is delivered to the residents existing in the area, perhaps not the residents that we're talking about who are um, moving into these new, um, these brand new tower blocks. A anyways, I think we're already talking about this, but in the, in the early days of planning the Stratford site. The vision was to create between 10,000, 12,000 new homes, mm. but this was revised down to just 6,800 homes by London's aforementioned former mayor, despite the housing crisis. At the time, he said using up precious land for East Bank was okay because it, was, uh, it would see more homes constructed in the wider area, but critics have said it was really about pumping up property prices, allowing for the develop development of luxury apartments which could transform local demographics. Is this a cynical take on things or could there be some truth behind it? What, what's this all about? Yeah, I think that's almost certainly the case. I mean, that's what regeneration is, right? It's remaking bits of London for the middle classes. Um, Newham's a very overcrowded, I think it's the most overcrowded 
borough in London and probably the most overcrowded part of the country then. Um, so it's got, and it's got a serious homeless problem. Um, it had the highest death rate from COVID because of the overcrowding. It's got serious problems, which this just isn't going to solve. It was never going to solve however many houses they built there unless they were going to build social houses. So whether there's a few more or a few less affordable houses, it's not really going to make any different apart, a difference apart from for the developers or the investors. This Saturday, the 9th of April, the Open House Worldwide Festival of tours exploring extraordinary housing across the globe will be streaming live. Details of this extraordinary free event have been published on the Open City and Open House Worldwide Festival website, where you can register to attend. The epic 12-hour live broadcast, running from 6am to 6pm UK time, will exhibit real-time tours, lively debates, and discussions centering around the idea of home. The festival, titled Housing and the People, will showcase bold housing estates and neighbourhoods from Lagos to Oslo, featuring the architects that built them and the residents who reshaped them. The schedule promises explorations uh, of futuristic housing estates, sensitively built projects for the elderly and those required, requiring assisted living. Conversations hosted in Melbourne, Basel and New York will ask what secure housing for women really looks like and how the cooperative living model can radically transform what we consider home to mean. Alongside the live broadcast, virtual visitors to the festival will be able to pursue more than 50 on-demand films, tours, debates and performances about housing around the world. If this has piqued your interest, you can find out more about the entire programme of events on their website at www.openhouseworldwide.org. So Tom... Architecture festivals often have quite ambiguous themes surrounding them. For example, when we look at the London Festival of Architecture in previous years, um, it's centred around uh, power, identity, boundaries, care. And this year's festival will be under the title of ACT. With that in mind, what is the significance of this festival choosing to spotlight home? Something which seems about as fundamental and, and accessible as architecture can get, right? Yeah, I'm not really sure I make of these um, thematic um, <laughs> words because I will sometimes wonder if it's because there's such a glut of curators on the market, right? There's a lot of cura curatorial programs producing lots of curators and they've got to do something. So they come up with a word, <laughs> which means that then everyone has to try and shoehorn everything into that word. I, that's what happens, I guess, if it's too narrow and then if it's too broad, then it becomes kind of entirely spurious and wishy-washy. I guess it does help with marketing, right? Because you can tell people we're doing something about this. Um, which is fine, you know, that's, that's life. Um, and I think home, obviously, is a really important, you know, for some of the reasons we were just talking about, it's a really important, fundamental question, particularly at the moment. Um, um, I agree. It's almost like, you know, the question um, I was asking Laura previously, this sort of um, the museum in, in the competition um, in Stratford is looking for dynamic, active, captivating spaces you know, these sort of single word definitions, which are quite hard to follow and end up being quite, you know, maybe like loose in, loose in delivery. Now, housing issue, housing is an issue we talk about a lot on the podcast, predominantly with regards to London. Clearly, this isn't an issue isolated to London, though. So, Tom, why is housing such a burning issue the world over? Is this sort of passing, is this a passing moment due to a crisis we're about to solve or something about to get even more universal? 
Um, yeah, it's universal. I mean, every city you can think of has a problem uh, with housing now, more or less. I can't really think of many that don't. Maybe Singapore, because they have so much social housing, which kind of brings me to my answer to the question. You know, the reason there is a housing crisis everywhere is because there's so much money everywhere because of neoliberal policies. I mean, people aren't taxed, so they've got huge quantities of capital swilling around. And they've got to invest it somewhere, and housing is a great, a safe bet. Um, in places like Singapore, where you can't invest, I believe, as an outsider in the housing market, and there's a huge provision of social housing, they don't have the problem in the same way. So that's, there's your answer. It's an easy answer. No one's going to do it, but hey, that's a, that's, um, that's a different problem. That's a political question. I don't know how impartial I'm meant to be as a host, but I, I, I tend to agree. Uh, Laura, the, the transition to digital working and learning has been difficult for pretty much every industry, but it seems to have been especially felt in, arch- in the architecture world and in architectural education. Site visits, trips, and tours are all important parts of architecture degrees, um, and programs. What do you make of virtual video tours as a way of experiencing spaces? Um, I think there's been a lot of discussion about the difficulties of the last two years, particularly in the space of architectural education. Um, but at the same time, we mustn't lose sight of what we've learned and the potentials within that. I think the use of film as a way to explore and represent architecture is one of these potentials. Um, and I see it now also in my students' work kind of for the first time, um, as well as in programs like Open House Worldwide. I don't think film can ever really be a substitute for experiencing a space in person, though. You know, in visiting a building, there's a kind of freedom to follow your own interests. What attracts my attention might not attract yours. You know, I can, when you take students to visit a building, you can see, you know, one person would just spend hours looking at a column detail and the other person is not seeing the details at all, but is looking at sort of the proportion and sequence of space. And the beauty of visiting the building is that you can make your own mind up for the first time. You know, you're not being... You're not being told what to think. And as a student, I think that's a really transformative moment. Um, so film presents us with a different kind of experience. It's inherently directed, it's curated, but it's also evocative. And I think we're coming to the realization now that there are many ways that we can learn about and teach architecture. And that can just be another part of a very rich tapestry. I'm also quite conscious of this sort of um, the way of experiencing architecture, which is on screen, becomes very two-dimensional. And you begin to see students' responses and proposals becoming, you know, reflecting that um, two-dimensionality. And even architects' buildings now, um, with the rise of sort of Instagram things that photograph very well but aren't um, experienced, perhaps, uh, in, the same, in the same way. So leading on from that, uh, this building, by the way, is a fantastic building. I absolutely <laughs> I love Kingston Town House. <laughs> yeah, this, yeah uh, absolutely. Um, leading on from that, at Open City, we have just launched a TikTok channel which so far has proved to be incredibly successful. Um, audience um, seem to know about only a couple of months after we began posting videos, we're reaching tens of thousands of people. Do you think the future of architecture, communication and public engagement could be on platforms like TikTok? And would you accept the students' coursework submitted via this platform? I mean, I think that since we first built buildings, we've struggled with how we represent a three-dimensional thing outside of itself and this is is just taking that conversation to a very 2022 moment um i guess um, social media has never been more important than it is today i think we've had two years of rolling lockdowns people are very isolated haven't been 
getting out so much is really reducing our daily lives to the interior. And the only way to get into the city or to travel has been via the internet. I think it's changed the way that we consume media online or it's accelerated a process that was already underway. Um, I mean, as with more long form video content, there's a place for things like this as part of a range of ways to engage and to learn. But I think until people are physically getting into buildings, in the way that Open City really excels at. They won't go deeper into their own narrative of what architecture is. And that's what we're, we're all striving for, isn't it? Thank you. So then we move to the final story of the day. That's right. Yeah, the final story of the day. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, Sai uh, Ah. Um, Southern California Institute of Architecture has come under scrutiny this week as students raise concerns over questionable advice given by the course leaders. This, this is a story that all started with a live-streamed roundtable for undergraduates, but was quickly picked up as an article by the Architects newspaper and later resulted in a flurry of Twitter posts by critics from around the world and even an explainer video on TikTok. Two senior members of staff the undergraduate chair and the history and theory coordinator have been placed on administrative leave and are under investigation following an outcry from shocked students, former students and other professionals who attended the talk last week. The live streamed roundtable discussion aimed at undergraduates was meant to detail professional norms and expectations in the industry. However, several speakers revealed troubling working conditions at the studios of two prominent faculty members as the talks progressed. Some speakers advocated that students should accept extremely arduous working weeks and should be prepared to take a pay cut if they like to work for smaller, more interesting design firms. One speaker is reported to have asked the audience, and I quote, would you like to work a 40-hour work week that you can barely get through, or is it 60-hour work week that you can't wait to start every day? Another person said, and I quote, if you're going to be happy, your life and your work essentially have to become the same thing. Disliking your job and then getting home at the end of the day and saying, I can finally live my life, is a horrible way to be. <laughs> Angry attendees slated the misleading and condescending nature of the talk, sparking a broader public conversation about teaching at Sci Arc. Many past and present students have since come forward with allegations about the, quote, nepotistic and exploitative culture of the school. A hot topic indeed, and with skin in the game, I'm sure every architect who's come through the system will have something to say on this. So, Tom, what's going on here? <laughs> I'm not an architect. Um, I'm not an architect, and I, and I don't teach architecture, and I never have. So um, I'm a slightly strange person to ask that question. But I mean, looking at it from an outsider, there are obviously some grotesque abuses that have gone on in this case. Mm. Well, it seems that way anyway. Maybe we should say that for legal reasons. Um, and from my friends who are architects, you know, I, I, I'm sorry to say this, but I think why would anyone be an architect sometimes? Because of the stories you hear people say. Uh, I'm, I'm also not a very good person to ask this because uh, this is an academic, I have very poor work-life hygiene, so I maybe <laughs> tend to sort of blend into one another, but I would never tell a student to do that, I would sort of say never do that. Yeah. Um, but then on that subject, I, I just wanted to, you know, this story does make me think, you know, some of the more, um, some of the more, I was going to say histrionic then, but that's maybe the wrong word. Some of the more demonstrative or loud reactions against us, particularly from certain Instagram accounts, 
make me think, you know, there is, there's a degree to which, and I, maybe I'm being devil's advocate here, there's a degree to which perhaps it's part of one's duty of care as a teacher to say, this is what it's like out there, actually. Um, and you can say no, and, you know, if you're not comfortable with doing things, do say no. But if you're not in a position of immense privilege, then you actually can't say no to a job if it comes along. You know, if, you, if that's the only job that comes along, then what are you meant to do? Eat, eat air. I this podcast is this close away from becoming viral, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, I, what I, I do want to say in, in addition to that is that I think that maybe my, my solution is that students, and maybe they do, because like I said, I don't teach architecture, should learn employment law, you know, should know their rights. I think that's very important. It should be maybe integrated into part three, um, yeah. if it isn't already. Yeah. Uh, Laura, architecture is, a well, is well known for being a pretty tough industry to work in. However, so many emerging practitioners at the moment are demanding fairer working conditions, more accessibility, and an end to unpaid uh, overtime. What can architecture schools be doing to support this positive trajectory? Well, I think to sort of build on what Tom has already said what this SciArc incident, there are other incidents, and for those of you who are interested, please feel free to read around the subject. But this specific incident that we're discussing, I think it demonstrates how we talk about the industry within a university context is so important. Um, you know, I was educated at a time when difficult conversations weren't had in the same way that they are today. I think students' questions and concerns were ignored or brushed under the carpet in the way that we saw happen in that panel. Um, and people with very, very legitimate economic concerns being told that actually, you know, they needed to make a choice about what kind of architect they wanted to be, which I think is just, you know, not 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 how it should be. Um, and I think we are we are approaching a pivotal moment in this regard. I think it's been brewing for a while. I think potentially this is the the incident that maybe will tip us into a slightly new way of thinking about the subject. I think practitioners, especially young practitioners and students are increasingly willing to shine a light into the sort of dark, fetid corners of this industry and to interrogate what we find there and to talk to each other about it. Um, and that an architecture school should be a place where difficult conversations can be had and where students feel that their voices are heard and where they can trust their staff. And sadly, they often fall short of that experience, particularly in America, but also here. And I think it's time we talked about it quite a lot of those things. But I mean, Tom, your, your point about eating air, I mean, this is also a, a, an issue, isn't it? It's, there's a structural problem. Like in, as a practitioner, I get emails from students asking for unpaid internships because they're so desperate to get a foot onto the ladder. And then I have to write this email back and say, look, I could never do that. I find it morally, ethically repulsive, but I'm not saying that about you. I'm saying that about something that's beyond your control. You know, if you don't have connections, it's really hard to break into an industry. I mean, there is you know, something that we do in Kingston, which I think is really excellent and could be expanded. We have a program called Access to Architecture. So if you're a second year student, um, you can apply to this program and be connected with a practice, some really, really amazing people. Um, and you get a month's work experience over the summer between second and third year. The university pays you an extremely fair wage, um, a very good wage, in fact, to do this. And then you make a connection. And so now you know people and maybe for your year out, you'll go back and people often do. We've got to find ways like that to create mm. a situation where students are not put in this desperate position. Yeah. Thank you, Laura. And um, if architecture as a whole did move 
towards a more equitable, fair and inclusive future. What could the impact of this be on our cities in our architecture? Um, I'd like to think that it would be transformative, but I suppose it's not so simple. You know, architects have power, like we said earlier, but actually if a more inclusive profession isn't reflected in politics or policymakers, planners, clients, contractors, it becomes difficult to affect change. Um, you know, we all know that we live in a grossly unequal society and until we can change that, I don't think we see an end to housing injustice, privately owned public spaces, or even something as simple as a greater provision of public toilets. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. A powerful and empowering way to finish the show today. I'd like to thank my guests, Laura and Tom, uh, for their <laughs> insightful responses. The producers of the, of the uh, London podcast, Poppy, Merlin, Finn, and the rest of the team. I'd like to thank you all for being here with us tonight and, and to the Kingston University for hosting us today. So everyone take care and good night. show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to the Architects Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag London, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.